0: I'm Eileen Dunn and this is our special Christmas edition of The God Slot.
1: Standing. it is a sacred space it's a holy place in fact the residents here are also holy, be they either the human residents or indeed the animal residents that you see going around the birds and so on
0: It was Siannaw Singer, theological and Gaelic scholar Noreenie Rian who invited Gerry McArdle and me to Glenstall Abbey, the world-famous Benedictine Monastery and Boys' College. And on Friday the 23rd of November, just over one month ago, we happily accepted her invitation. My first question to her had to be, how does a woman find herself living in the all-male environment of a Benedictine monastery? For
1: some reason I was drawn to hear... I always have been. It's woven through, I'm 61, and it's been a thread of my life. Always, going back right back to then. But then, of course, it was the place. I used to cycle here, and I'd leave my drop my little bike. And I just felt, the minute I came in here, I felt at home. I felt at peace, whereas I wasn't at home, you know. And then I'd come into the back of the church. And not time, because very often, um, like, mass wasn't at midday day then. Um, and very often Vespers was at six which would be quite late to get back home because my parents never knew I was coming here And um, but I do remember the sounds of plainchant chant I was here when they opened that church that we were standing in there um, in 1957 I was six and my mother it was a big event in the locality oh, because the, the bishop was coming and so on and my mo- mother bundled me into her little Morris Minor I remember the day well and said we have to go and so I can vaguely remember the chant and the teeming people you know the crowds of people around at the time so yes being drawn here and used to bring them I went to boarding school and uh, anytime then I would have my friends boarding school in Dundalk actually which is a good bit away from here and then when I'd have my friends here I'd bring them over here showing them the monastery and say what what do you find special about here you know Um so, yes, it's been a very, very special place. Then when we got married, I remember, of course, bringing Mick here, Michal Sullivan, bringing him here as when we were a young couple, and, of course, we loved the chant. And then gradually we got to know uh, some of the monks here, who were sort of the young things here at the time, um, the Abbot Patrick, uh, Simon, Kiron. And we were sort of fascinated by their life as they were too, sort of this young couple. And so we would have... We'd be arguing for hours and hours at night, and it was a lovely friendship. And then we, um, Mick was on sabbatical for a while, and so then the idea of um, us moving in here as a little lay outreach came up. And so we were not in this cottage, but we were in another little cottage down there. Owen was two, so this is 30 years ago. And uh, so we moved in here for nine months, and we started taking turns to go to the offices and so on. Um, and then we started um, making the recordings because Mick got this job in um, UCC and then I went back to do a master's which was on traditional religious song. And so this vice sharing said, my God, let's, let's sing some of this together. And it was a sort of uh, an organic kind of a banter, you know, in that they were teaching me chanting. I was teaching them um, and it was Mick really was teaching them because he was a brilliant teacher. He is a brilliant teacher. And so he started teaching them. And then the idea, Guilin heard about it. And they came up with, Bob McGarran, came up with the idea of doing a recording. That was Queen and Amidna. That was 1979. And that was very popular at the time, you know. Um, So we did concerts and Charles Acton reviewed it and uh, created great balls. And then, yeah, I went through separation and divorce then and how I kept myself going through that was I sort of became kind of a hermit and so I applied at Hall for a little hermitage to finish a doctorate in theology in 2003 which I finished and uh, so they gave me a lovely little cottage and I lived here very very happily indeed for um, 18 months then left because I got a scholarship to America and all, so other things took over for another few years and then still like an elastic band drawn back here again um, and then felt I should apply for um, a more permanent hermitage. Um, so this is where you are.:
0: The Abbot of Glen Mark Patrick Hederman, an old friend of this program, explained the importance of Noreen in the monastic setup.
2: She's the, one of the people that I have met during my life who has got a direct connection with God. And hers is actually mostly through music. So she has, all her life, from uh, the time she's very young, she has been a channel for that connection through her music. And she has written that to the extent that she's done a doctorate in theology explaining what happens to her naturally. Now that's very few people in the world, in fact very recently one person was made a doctor of the church by the Pope, Hildegard of Bingen, uh, who had a similar kind of um, gift. So it's a gift and she knows that it's a gift and it has been with her uh, for an extraordinary length of time. Most people who are singers uh, have a certain length of time while they can sing hers has remained always the same almost as if she um it's almost like, like like a boy's voice almost that never broke you know she has always had so we're very privileged to have her here almost like an anchorite you know in the medieval times um somebody with such a gift would want to stay somewhere and they created for them uh, a cell beside the church and she was born near here and has always been attracted to here but this is an entirely uh, personal relationship in the sense that she has no binding here she could decide to like any songbird to move somewhere else but it has been good for her to be here and it has been very good for us and more importantly just beside us uh, is the University of Limerick which has developed the most amazing faculty of world music and they have, from the beginning established with us a connection through chant, so it's possible to do a university degree in plain chant, which we sing here as our prayer. And she is very important in that connection because she's both a professional singer and she prays as a singer as well. So that's unusual. M- most people are either professional. Or their prayer, and if you're praying, it doesn't always mean that you're a good singer. So it's very particular and very special. But I would say that um, it is the Holy Spirit that has organised this. There are two levels in the Church. There's the charismatic level, and then there's the institutional level. And one is dealing with. Uh, the apostolic succession and the bishops and the institution but the other is to do with prophecy and the Holy Spirit so she is an inspired uh, vehicle for the church at this particular time and more important than that she represents the feminine principle which is also the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the feminine principle of the Trinity So, in a community of all men, uh, she represents a feminine principle which many, many women who come here recognize and identify with. And she's happy about that, and she um, provides us with an element that really would be entirely lacking in our way of life here, were she not here. So it's a huge privilege for us, but I regard it as being uh, a gift of the Holy Spirit. And, you see, we don't own this place. This is God's house. So the rule of St. Benedict says that if somebody turns up and uh, you have to listen to that person very attentively because they may have been sent by the Holy Spirit precisely to do something or to tell you something that you should know. So for my belief is that she is here because the Holy Spirit wants her to be here and that she understands that and we understand that. So I don't think it's... um, It's a a possibility of saying, "Oh yes, she's next door to an archbishop, or she's." It's it's not possible to place her in the institutional structure, which is laid out for church and monasteries. You're dealing with another structure here, which is the uh, the realm of the spirit, and the spirit blows where the spirit will and nobody knows where it comes from or where it's going to, but you're just happy that it's the way it is.
0: One of Noreen's great joys is singing with the boys of the college choir under their choir master, Father Columba. We joined them as they enthusiastically took part in a warm-up exercise with her. What is your title, Richie? Um, I'm vice captain of the school and uh, choir captain as well. And what does choir captain entail?
1: Um, well, I have to make sure all the boys go to practice. Uh,
0: to How hard a job is that? Oh, Well, we all enjoy choir so much, it's not a very hard job at
2: all. Mm.
0: Well, I'm really impressed. It's a Friday evening, there's rugby practice on and some of you have given that up to be here with us and you clearly do enjoy it. You're all smiling as you're singing.
3: Yeah, yeah it's great. Um, a lot of lads are playing Senior Cup this year and
0: Miss training, uh, but we're all happy to do that. Yeah. So Liam Og, you're captain of the junior choir. How difficult is it for you to get them all into choir practice?
3: No, they're very, they're very good. Like they come on the right time. They know when to come. So. It's pretty easy, they just know the times, there's only one one time, and they always come and they, they never miss it, they try
0: to come as, as much as they can. And who's this guy next door, what's your name? Uh, Tinaid. Tanade. where are you from Tinead? I'm um, Singapore. And is this your first year in Ireland? No, second. Year. Second, and how are you enjoying Glenstall? I like it very much, it's enjoyable. And had you ever done any singing before you came?
3: No. Something to do over Sunday, I mean, I usually, <laughs> I don't really go home very often, so. I just like to sing, because it kind of just helps me.
0: And have you got into the rugby too? Yeah, I have. Did you play that before, or is it new to you? Um,
3: it's recent, yeah, it's new. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And after hearing all about the doings of Dr. Knickerbocker, the boys treated us to Owen Alstott's setting of the great prayer of Mary, when pregnant with her baby Jesus, she visited her cousin Elizabeth, the Magnificat. Now, even though our single microphone, more suited to recording interviews, may not do the quality of the singing full justice, you'll get the idea of the glory of the music making. The joy in the chapel was palpable, and that included choirmaster Father Columba, who explained to us that his priestly life wasn't always spent in the confines of a monastery.
3: Somebody once said to me, uh, uh, oh, your of ceremony is the Archbishop, you must be very high up the ladder. And I said, no, my job is to hold the ladder. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. I think um, way back, even before I was ordained a priest, when I came here for my diaconate retreat, back in 1987 I was already bitten by the bug but it took me uh, much longer time to come here
0: And what prompted the move?
3: What prompted the move? Um, Chatting to a very wise woman who knew me well she said I know you've talked about being a monk before I think you should consider it seriously and it was like a, a snowball kind of running down a hill from that point on and it was reading some of the opening lines of the uh, rule of St. Benedict that prompted that conversation with that particular woman about uh, Benedict speaking about the place of love in his rule and how all the di- behind all the different regulations and stipulations was uh, a way of looking at life which safeguards love.
0: And the arts, and you're a musician.
3: It's a wonderful thing about being here that I have uh, the space and the time to keep that part of myself alive. Very important to me.
2: Thank you.
0: Now we're in the Icon Chapel, surrounded by such beauty, Noreen. Explain to us about something. Isn't it amazing?
1: And of course, we're underneath the altar of the church now. So you're actually coming down into the darkness. And so the story of them is that there was this diplomat stationed in Paris in the 1930s, a man called Sir Gretton Esmond. And he and his wife were very interested in iconography, these icons that you're looking at now, which are between 17th century and 19th century Greek and Russian icons. And so that was in the 1930s, of course, was just after the Russian Revolution in 1917, when white, when Christian Russians had to flee. And of course they came to Europe, then carrying their very prized possessions. And so he bought them up at that stage and then in the 1950s presented them to Glenstall Abbey. And of course at that stage then, back in the 50s, they were just thrown all over the place. Some were hanging up the church, some were hanging all over the, the, the monastery. But in 1976, this woman uh, from Zurich, Joa Belendas, a Swiss woman, she had a vision of Saint Nicholas. You can see there are two icons of St. Nicholas here. And she had a vision of Saint Nicholas um, where he told her that there were icons in Ireland in a monastery and that she must help to find them. So she sent her nephew, who actually was a past pupil of the school here, and her and uh, um, he's um, the wife of Johnny Hill and a photographer and they came to Ireland and of course they came to Glenstall Abbey and they met the now abbot then who was a young monk at the time um, brother Patrick Hederman and he said yes actually we have icons so he assembled some of them the photographer took photographs went back and Joy said yes these are the icons she had a subsequent vision where um, she was told she said that you have to go back and tell that monastery that they have to assemble all those icons in one place and not only that but that icon chapel must be opened on the 10th of april in 1988 which is exactly 1000 years after christianity came to russia in 988 so that was quite a tall order and so they came back again and then at that stage of course There was great arguments as to where this Icon Chapel would be, would have been a monastery, would have been the church or wherever. And one evening, that same Brother Patrick, a young monk at the time, um, was standing here in the place where we are now, which of course is under the church, it was just a storeroom really for brushes and hoovers and paints and so on. And this young man came down, he was standing here with a friend of his, um, Jeremy Williams, and uh, this young man came down and he said, my mother has died recently and she's told me what you're doing I am the architect to design this icon chapel and that man was a man called James Scanlon and so uh, Patrick talks about this in one of his books Walkabout and he says at this stage they were looking for the, the, uh, an ambulance to take him to the nearest psychiatry hospital uh, but no they said yes you're the man to design it so what you're looking at here is a little mini Byzantine cathedral you're coming in we just walked in in the nave we're now standing here in the heavens and in here then is the highest heavens so it's very much in 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 the and we did open it on the 10th of april in 1988 i sang it here myself and it was a marvelous uh, occasion beautiful occasion and while we were opening it, Joa had another vision, where she saw three shafts of light descend one on Russia, one on Northern Ireland, and one on Glenstall Abbey, and that Glenstall Abbey would be a centre for the reconciliation of art and religion and in fact that has been, and if you remember Eileen, then the 10th of April 1998 was the Good Friday Agreement, that's right. and of course coming down, they, uh, also the Berlin Wall came down around the same time but this is where you're implicated and indeed I suppose your listeners too and that jo- Joah also saw a shaft of light descend upon everybody who would visit this icon travel and that you would be in some way touched spiritually, emotionally, physically by just being in the presence of
3: these icons <laughs>
0: Later, Jerry took up the story of St Nicholas with Abbot Mark Patrick.
2: Now, it was funnily enough in the RTE guide that I first read about the possibility of St Nicholas being buried in Ireland. And I was travelling in the year 2010 from Dublin to Waterford to give a talk and I passed by Point Abbey and I remembered what I had read that St. Nicholas was buried in, near Jerpoint. So I went into Gerpoint and I asked the two girls who were there at the interpretive centre, where is Santa Claus buried? <laughs> they said, well, he's not here, but he's just round the corner. So I went round the corner, I couldn't find the place and I went to a and b that's just uh, up the road and the woman there said, oh yes, she said, we're all Normans here, I'm Fitzpatrick and he's buried in a farmyard which has just recently been bought by somebody but it belonged originally to Jerpoint Abbey as a sort of a chapel of ease and if you tell the farmer uh, on the intercom which you had to use to get into his gate he lets you in because it's a uh, it's a graveyard and therefore there's a right of way into it so I was went in and I discovered this extraordinary little chapel with a tombstone, with Saint Nicholas on the tombstone, and two knights, one a knight bishop and another a knight on either side, and I knew even when I got there that Saint Nicholas was present in this place. And I visited it a number of times, and eventually the man who owned the farm uh, was asking me what's going on here, and I told him this is where St. Nicholas is buried. Now there's a whole uh, question about how that could happen, or what would happen, and it's all about Normans and the Crusades, and the Normans were absolute savages. I mean, they were pillaging and plundering and conquering everywhere, and the way they Kept everybody under control was by putting monasteries around their uh, conquered lands. And the monks used to irrigate the lands, put structure around, and keep the peasants under control. And in order to make the monastery look as if it was divinely appointed, you had to have the relics of a first rate saint. Now, if that could possibly have been one who was with Christ. At the time of his life, then, that was kind of the first league. But St. Nicholas of Myra was very, very wonderful. His name was the Wonder Worker, so he became a first league player in terms of being a a relic that you sought. So his relics were stolen from Myra, and it was at the time when the Muslims had conquered that area and they brought it back to Bari in Italy. And then the Normans were driven out of Bari, so they went to the south of France. And one of them, uh, who was called Nicholas de Frenet, who had uh, properties in Thomastown and Kilkenny, he came back from... A niece, and he is meant to have brought some of the relics, because half of the skeleton went to Bari, the other half went to Venice. And some years ago, they did uh, tests on the two skeletons, both in Venice and in Bari, and they discovered it's the same body. Now, whether it's the body of Saint Nicholas, it's the same person. So, anyway, this man was meant to have brought back uh, for Jerpoint. And the tombstone that's down there would be around about the 13th century. So um, I was sure that St. Nicholas was present in that place and trying to say something to the people of Ireland at this time. So we went on a pilgrimage there this June, July, last July, and I said Mass in the graveyard. And it seems to me that what St. Nicholas is telling us at this time is that there is a more ancient Christianity which was Celtic and which was before any of the divisions between the Orthodox and the Catholic. That's to say before the great schism in 1100s and long before the Reformation or any other divisions like that. So that That's the first point. And the second is that a new prosperity is to come to Ireland because what we had during the era of the Celtic Tiger was very selfish and greedy, Whereas St. Nicholas is the great patron of secret givers and of great philanthropists. He was giving money, his three bags of gold, which he gave to three houses around him because the three daughters in the houses couldn't get married because they didn't have a dowry so he threw a bag of gold through the first front door and a bag of gold through the second the third house, the front door was closed so he got up on the roof and let the bag down the chimney now those girls would have been destined to become prostitutes if they hadn't the dowry to get married so he's patron of young women looking for a husband who don't have a diary, of children and of sailors. Uh, he's the patron, so the Dutch sailors, because he's a patron of Amsterdam as well, who founded New York, they brought St. Nicholas with them, and they called him Sinta Niklaus. so that means Sinta Klaus, that's where Santa Claus comes from, uh, and he has done enormous, he was the person when Christopher Columbus was sailing to try and discover America, he set off from Galway, from St. Nicholas's Church Mm -hmm. there. So he has a huge um, radiance around the world, but most important of all, his name means in Greek, triumph of the laity. Nicolaus. Laos is the same word for laity and Nico means triumph. So what he's really telling us is that the lay church has to take back possession of their own church and to really not be influenced by what happens to huge institutions elsewhere, that we have everything in place locally in order to be Christians and to celebrate the Eucharist and to have the Church here, wherever we happen to be. So last week I was in Kilkenny and I was asked by the people there, they have a series during November called Voices of Hope, And so I went directly from a jerk point where St. Nicholas is buried to the church where they were having Mass. And I told them I have been sent here to tell you that St. Nicholas is buried here in Kilkenny and that this is where uh, the new consciousness is meant to emerge because I believe that December is a very important month for this new Christian consciousness to emerge and to make Ireland more prosperous and more like it should be in the model of St. Nicholas.
0: And while we let you digest that story, let's take some time to meet some of the other members of the Glenstall Benedictine monastic community. <laughs> In First, there was Brother Michael.
2: I was born in Dublin Liberties. So where you breed at church in Elves. My grandfather told me as a little boy, a four-year-old, just on the keys, the family rose it was said with it. ten potatoes...
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: after each hen may, he had to ship one, and he forgot your Mother gave you a close said, no, potato." That's the late Leo McGuire's mother, Did the Walton problem, yes, up, indeed, yeah. 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 and his 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 uh, his sister, he was my grand aunt actually
0: then Father Simon, who played a major part in the design and execution of the best-selling Glenstall Book of Prayer.
4: The prayer book came about because um, I was redundant at the time. I had been headmaster and was doing nothing, and there was a Father Peter here, Gilfeder from the north, and he was running the shop, and I looked at a prayer book that he was trying to sell, which was an Ampleforth Abbey, And it had the Our Father on one side in Latin and the Our Father on the other side in English. And I said, well, that's two pages of a book. I could put it in three languages, add in Latin, and surely I was away. And he said, would you do something useful, maybe for a change, and do it. (laughs) So we got a committee together, including Noreen, and we worked it. And we had great fun doing it. And within a week of it coming out, it was a bestseller.
0: And from that book, Father Simon read this prayer of St. Basil of Caesarea.
4: Steer the ship of my life, good Lord, to your quiet harbour, where I can be safe from the storms of sin and conflict. Show me the course I should take, Renew in me the gift of discernment so that I can always see the right direction in which I should go. And give me the strength and the courage to choose the right course, even when the sea is rough and the waves are high knowing that through enduring hardship and danger, we shall find comfort and peace.
0: We also met Brother Anthony, whose joy in nature is expressed in speech that can only be described as poetic. He looks after the estate.
5: Well, well, we all do. In fact, every, everyone in the, world, in the world does. And uh, the woods are particularly beautiful at this time of the year. Uh, we have just had a most splendid autumn as the chlorophyll gently withdraws, revealing the colours which were there all the time during summer. And now we're coming into the most brilliant part of the year, namely the darkest and the deepest, when the oak, the bones of the bare oak, glisten in the pale sunlight, and the immense richness and power of the holly and the yew emerge, to show that
0: from the smile on your face you look as if it's your favourite time of the year
5: it it really is, yes, um, just like on the winter solstice, on the darkest day of the year, at the darkest time of that day the whole church in its ancient chant Exultantly calls out, "O O, orient splendor luches eternae! O rising splendor of eternal light!" The celebration of this tremendous light at the very heart of the darkness.
0: Later, on a walk around the gardens, Brother Anthony told Jerry a type of parable concerning a woman, a fox, and a hen.
5: You see the cliff over there, the big stones. I was once here at midday when Mrs Quinlan lived in that house and a fox came down to see her. It came into the garden and she came out the back door and the fox was trapped between... there were the hens there beside him there was um, a big cliff on one side and Mrs Quinlan on the other he took one look at Mrs Quinlan who was otherwise a very pleasant lady and uh, decided to make for the cliff but as he did so he grabbed a hen by the legs and went flying out over the edge of the cliff and she flew him down and they flew through the air dropping about 80 feet down, on, down onto that stream. And there, in gratitude, he threw her over his shoulder and brought her home to tea. But I, I think it's, it's a great um, uh, parable for the spiritual life, in, in, in that the, the children of this world are more are brighter than the children of light, And um, in that he saw his goal and went for it. Thought and action were, were one. And he's somebody I try to emulate.
0: So many wonderful conversations and stories, so little time to bring them to you. But let's not forget the day that's in it. And here Noreen tells us what Christmas
1: means to her. Oh, I love it. It's about new beginnings. It's about Advent, the start of this new year. And then, of course, it is new beginnings, but it's also the birthing of Christ in us. Because if Christ isn't birthed in us, well, it's no good, you know, as Meister Eckhart would say. you know, If this birth doesn't happen in me, what use is it? So for me, it's always a time of new beginnings. I don't know if you know, that's a beautiful um, blessing of John O'Donohue for this time, this new beginning. i see if I can remember it. In out-of-the-way places of your mind, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time, it has watched you play with the seduction of safety Seeing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. Then, the delight. When your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground. That's what Christmas is, stepping out into new ground. Your heart young again with desire and dream. You can trust the promise of this new beginning. Learn to find ease in risk. Awaken your heart to adventure. Know that your heart is home in a new world. You know, I think that is the essence of new beginnings and new times and cleaning out our house. You know, it's like you'll know, I mean, when you were pregnant, that it was a time of preparing and you started cleaning the house and you started becoming obsessive about preparing the place. You know, so if we can get that excitement, that same excitement about Christmas again and taking it away from the tinsels. I mean, I know it's been said a million times, too. But going back, that's why I you know, think it's even lovely to go back and to re-examine Silent Night, Holy Night, Away in a Manger, no, you know, just to reawaken, to look, to hear with new ears all these carols that we've been singing mundanely for so long, you know, to make them from ordinary carols into extraordinary carols.
0: We are so grateful to Nori Nerian, to the Boys Choir, to Abbot Christopher for his unfailing courtesy and hospitality, and to the entire Benedictine community at Glenstall Abbey for giving so generously of their time, wisdom, and spiritual insights, and for helping us to make this program the God Slots Christmas gift to you. The listeners, we wish you all the blessings of the season and we leave the final words to Abbot Mark Patrick Hederman with his message for all of us on this very special day.
2: Well, first of all, I would say that we must thank God and be joyful on Christmas Day that this is the day that God comes into our world and that really we have to make sure that God comes into our world this year, 2012, in Ireland, and that the way we do that is by having this direct connection with the Holy Spirit and asking that Spirit, how can I make God more present, more incarnate, more like Christmas every day, and I will do whatever I can to make that happen.